But a lot of the young Kumuhula, who are now old Kumuhula, uh, weren't so keen on what I was doing. They thought it was the black period of Hawaiian music, you know, where our, our, our kupuna had been tricked and we had, you know, gone into the territory and lost our identity and there was some ill feeling at that particular time. But as they got older and as things, people learned more about all of this, they began to accept it and, and now it's revered and now you see it uh, at the Merry Monarch and, you know, it's, it's found its place. He kept the music of Hawaii's past alive and meaningful for future generations. Territorial Airwaves radio host Harry B. Soria Jr. next on Long Story Short. One-on-one engaging conversations with some of Hawaii's most intriguing people. Long Story Short with Leslie Wilcox. Aloha mai kako. I'm Leslie Wilcox. For 40 consecutive years, Harry B. Soria Jr. has hosted Territorial Airwaves, a weekly radio show featuring vintage Hawaiian music recorded between 1915 and 1959. You're in the territory with Harry B. Soria first launched Territorial Airwaves on KCCN in 1979 with the late radio legend Jacqueline Honolulu Skylark Rossetti. It's the longest-running radio show in Hawaii, airing at this time in 2019 on AM 940, as well as on TerritorialAirwaves.com. Soria continues to preserve and share rare and otherwise forgotten recordings of Hawaii's past in a collection that now numbers more than 10,000 vinyl records. The territorial-era music he passionately advocates is also referred to as hapahaole music, or a merging of Hawaiian and Western music. Hawaiian music is always a reflection of the Western musical influences of the decade. So whether it's big band swing, whether it's calypso, whether it's uh, Jawaiian now, whatever it is, it's always a reflection of what's on the mainland. And it's coming in and affecting the youth, and they're listening to it. You know, we, we had Richard Cowhey was a reflection of Nat King Cole and all of that. You know, there's always some influence coming in which was persuading the youth to change the way they expressed Hawaiian music. When a young person comes to you and says, why should I listen to territorial airwaves? What do you tell them? (laughs) It's actually been the other way around. People say, oh, you know, I was born in 1998, but I listen to territorial airwaves. And and I'm amazed. You know, they're young musicians. They, they, They ask for songs to put on their records. There's this curiosity where... They're interested in language, hula, you know, and all of the performing arts, and they realize that the older music is where it all is. And there's no direct connection to the people performing it, but you're the link. I guess that's it, yeah, because the aunties and uncles are all gone, you know. I mean, when I play voices on my show, you're in the territory with Harry B., this is Andy Cummings or whatever, well, they're long gone. They've been gone forever, but they still live on my show. You, they still talk to you every week. One thing about radio, 
when the record's playing, that's when you hear the real story. So the challenge is to, decades later, remember the story that was told off-air by the person who has passed on and share it with the contemporary audience in a meaningful way. So it's, it is challenging, but uh, for some reason, all of these things stay with me. You remember all those conversations. I, I think it goes back to my father telling me, this used to be that, that used to be this. As a child, Harry recalls that his family moved into the very first block of homes in the new housing subdivision of Aina Haina in East Honolulu. He attended public schools in the district all the way through his graduation from Kalani High. Here's a stunning fact. For 100 years, there's been a Soria working in Hawaii Radio. Three generations, starting with Harry G. Soria, then Harry B. Soria Sr., and currently Harry B. Soria Jr. Together, they're called the first family of Hawaii Radio. Well, Soria is Spanish. Uh, they emigrated from Spain to Bordeaux, France, and then to Saint-Domingue, which is the uh, Dominican Republic today and then to New York City in 1791. Became Americans then? Yes, so just 20 years after the revolution, we were there, uh, some of the earliest Spanish. Uh, we kept moving westward, and my grandfather uh, came to Berkeley, California uh, to represent a company, brought his family, and then came over uh, from Berkeley to Honolulu in 1919. Talk about traveling, that's a lot of movement. So this is our centennial, our, our 100th year in Hawaii. 1919 is, yeah. was the year he set foot here. Yep. He quickly, uh, very quickly got involved with Marion Monroney of KGU Radio, the first radio station that started in 1922. And uh, he became the solicitor and very successful for decades. What is a solicitor? Attorney? Uh, a time salesman. A time salesman. Okay, so he sold radio ads? Yep. Yep, the very first. And uh, Dad eventually broke in as uh, a personality. So he became, uh, you know, going to town with Harry Soria or Voice of Hawaii or all these specialized shows that my grandfather created to feature him. And so he became a, a radio star in the 30s. So your grandfather created the shows... Uh, as a way to sell commercials, and your father provided the content for the show. Yes, exactly. He, my, my father would learn how, would jury-rig things and make the first remote broadcast or the first uh, uh, shortwave broadcast or whatever he could figure out. And this was in the days before television. Radio was huge, right? It was everything, yeah. That, that's what people depended on. Mm -hmm. So was your dad a star? At that time, yes. Yeah, I have a lot of his publicity pictures and so forth. And uh, he was the first guy with his name on a show going to town with Harry Soria. And he was the first uh, uh, personality that was known outside of Hawaii because he was known as the voice of Hawaii. So there was uh, recognition trans-Pacific-wise. So it, it kind of... It made for a, a very heady time in the 1930s, but when World War II came, it was all over. After that, the war, when he returned, 
He was... Uh, when he in, returned from fighting? Well, he was uh, a censor for, for the electronic calls, uh, long-distance phone calls and so forth. Uh, so when he returned, he was, in, he, he was immediately activated in the uh, Navy intelligence to be uh, running this particular division. And after that was over, he was in management and sales after that. My mom uh, was a war widow. Uh, she was in her early 20s. She left Washington, D.C., came all the way across the, the nation uh, demonstrating uh, business machines for the women now entering the, the workforce during the war. Uh, at the end of the war in '46, she was assigned to Honolulu to Fisher Printing. And she was supposed to demonstrate the dressograph and the new machines. And her first client was my father, who was trying to put together a uh, what would be like a midweek today. It didn't go, but you know he was trying to get it off the ground. And so she was consulting for him. And then uh, at the end of the week, they had argued the whole week. And he said, hey, have you gone around the island yet? She said, no, I haven't seen anything. So okay, I'll pick you up. And that was it. And there's a big age difference between them. Yes. He, he, uh, when I was born in 48, uh, my father was 43 and my mother was 24. So they were able to bridge those generations. And uh, I think that was part of the magic of our family. Wow. And that worked. That May-December marriage worked. And uh, just held hands, walked around the block every night. Long into their marriage? All the way through their marriage. Never stopped. Yeah, very much in love. And my parents bought one of the very first homes in Aina Haina, on the very first street, Papai. And it was one of the first ten houses. And there, we have a photo of nothing but uh, this little street with a few houses on it. My father was a shriner, and we had lots of parties. That was a, a side thing going on. And they had, Shriners had lots of parties. So we had Andy Cummings playing for dancing in our lanai. And we had, uh, I sat in the living room and talked to Duke Kahanamoku. And wow. We had, we had all these uh, people who I found out later were very important celebrities, but they were also part of the shrine organization. So because of that, I, I got to meet everybody in our home, and, and it was kind of uh, amazing to look back later and realize who I'd actually spent time with as a, as a young boy. I think the, the, the cleverest thing he did was I, I was uh, pretty young, still in elementary school, and he uh, brought home a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. And he said, um, here, this is how you use it. Um, why don't you try and make a show? an adventure series, you know, like I watched on television, the, the serials. So sound effects and voices and imitating things. And, and uh, he told me that uh, the biggest thing that he worried about was that his son would have mic fright. And so he wanted me to get used to the sound of my own voice on this tape recorder so that I wouldn't be intimidated by a PA system or 
uh, a tape recorder or any other form of electronic recording. Do you think he saw you going into broadcasting the way he and your grandfather did? You know, I don't know. I, I, I wonder about that because... It's pretty subtle, but... It's very subtle, <laughs> yeah. But he did want me to, to get over that. Uh, he, uh, to him, Mike Fright was a big deal. You know, and he didn't want that. And if you think in the 50s, where there were very few microphones and opportunities, it'd be easy to have microphones. Oh, yes. So he, uh, he, he had this fear that I, I don't want you to be afraid of a microphone. And that seemed to be very, very important to him. So we addressed that very early on. Harry B. Soria Jr. did not immediately follow his father's footsteps into Honolulu radio broadcasting, despite being introduced to the microphone at a young age. He did take his father's advice and earned a college degree in business, and then had a career in credit collections. Along the way, in 1976, he found something in an old overlooked storage crate that would transform his life. And then suddenly in... Uh... 76, the Renaissance was happening, and my father said, hey, you want to see this uh, box of things I have? And they're in the garage, and I have to get rid of them. We're moving. So I went through, and here's his, the contents of his entire office at KGU that he put into a shipping crate on December 8th, 1941. So at one point, uh, Dad pulled this paper tape out, it was carbon paper. It wasn't plastic tape. It was on a reel, and he queued it up on an old machine, and there was Alvin Isaacs and his group. One of the songs had never been heard, and uh, it was um, about the inter-island airport, and it was a comedy song. So I initially thought, oh, this would be a great record, so I approached Mike Kelly and and Jerry Santos and the gang and asked them if they would want to release it on their label. But happily, they said, you should talk to Skylark because that's more of a radio vehicle. So I went to Sky and I showed her something. We transcribed it and Skylark heard it and she was just amazed by it. So she started playing it on the radio and it became a big hit. What was it like? Um, it was... Uh, here comes the big mokulele. It was called the mokulele A. And uh, it, it was all about the inter-island airport and the early airplanes. And it was hapahali. It was real fun kind of lyrics. And uh, it just took off. And it, so in 78, 79, it became this big hit on the radio. A very highly requested song. Harry B. Soria Jr. would continue to share more forgotten vintage Hawaiian music with Jacqueline Honolulu Skylark Rossetti, then a young KCCN radio DJ. She immediately took interest in both the vintage records and the pre-statehood stories that Soria and his father could share with radio audiences. In 1979, Harry and Skylark co-hosted the first episode of Territorial Airwaves. Sky recognized that... Uh... We had this older music. She had a passion for 78s, but she would play the records. She was like 23. So she would play the records and she'd go, this is so weird. What does this mean? Why are they doing this? And I would call my father and say, Dad, they're asking a question about this song. 
and say, oh, well, that's because we did this. And then I would call up her and I'd say, well, my dad says, so after a while, she would say, why don't you come on? So I started coming on, bringing some records. It took off, and that, that was it. The beginning of territorial airwaves. Exactly. And did your father's old office suitcase yield more songs? It was full of records and song sheets and photographs and business cards and whatever you can think of. And he spent the time to explain each and every item to me and kind of walk me through this history of what radio was like. Um, so he kind of he realized I was interested at that point. And so he really immersed me in everything. And I think there are parents who want to tell their uh, their children, you know, more about their jobs. But sometimes kids aren't interested at that age. But you were. Well, especially in our case, because there's two generations between us, right? So he was like my grandfather. Even though he was your father. Yeah. Uh And so for me to take an interest in his life back in his prime was unexpected. And and he loved it. So he was very proud. And uh, he was like the, the consultant for the show for the first 11 years. And it gave you a reach far beyond what someone your age would normally have. Exactly. You know, if, if people would ask questions, I could go right to the source. He would give me the answers. He must have loved hearing the show. You know, every show, every week, he would listen, and I would come home, and on my answering machine would be a critique. Uh, in, a, in a positive way? In a positive way. You know, this was good, but... You could have, yeah. And then other radio guys, uh, legends, got involved, started supporting me. Ron Jacobs Mm -hmm. started calling me and giving me advice and listening to the show. And uh, occasionally Tom Moffat. And uh, these guys, I had known them as a young rock and roller. So now they were giving me advice about the radio. So it, it really helped that they would give me insights into their careers. And what they had done. And nobody else was doing what you were doing at that time. No, it was, it was unheard of. You know. But in part, it was because it was not all that popular. Well, we didn't even have oldies rock and roll shows yet. This was oldies Hawaiian, period. You know, uh, you mentioned this was right about the time of the Hawaiian Renaissance. Mm-hmm. The Hawaiian Renaissance wasn't wild about territorial music. I mean, it, it was hapahaole. It was not, you know, it was not... Hawaiian. It was not authentic. It was kind of a mixture. Lots of, lots of um, Malahini references. Luckily, I had Skylark, who was my champion, who believed in what I was doing. There's two ways to look at it. You know, some people say, "Oh, they just they outlawed the the language and they destroyed the connection, and we lost our roots." But on the other side. Without Hapahoe music, we wouldn't have had that string to keep us going to this point so that we would have a generation rediscovering Hawaiian language and, and writing songs again. In addition to his weekly broadcast of Territorial Airwaves, Harry B. Soria Jr. worked to restore rare and out-of-print Hawaiian music recordings based on the records he collected over the years. He re-released many of these lost albums on newer formats like compact disc and digital music files. Through the years, people would say, Harry, get rid of your records and put it all on tape. Get rid of your records and put it on cassettes. 
Get rid of your records and put it on CDs. Get rid of your records and put it on the Internet. But the point is, I've kept the source material, and I'm glad I did, because all these other mediums have gone away. They don't last. You know, CDs, whatever. They're gone. So by keeping the original 78s, 45s, 33s, I haven't lost my connection to the source material. And I understand you have a lot of those. How many records do you have? About 10,000 Hawaiian. Yeah. And do you keep them in a place you won't say where it is? No, no. In our living room, we have uh, the working collection in big bookcases. And then we have more in our storage lockers and so forth. There's... 10,000. And some of them were given to you, right? You went door. I heard the story about you going door to door yeah. and saying, do you, do you want your old records? Well, there was that time when nobody had a 78 RPM player anymore. And so what I would do after work is I had handbills and I would drive around the communities of Kaimaki, Kapahulu, you know, wherever. Older communities. Older communities. Yeah. And I would look for a home with fruit trees and a canvas, green and white striped canvas <laughs> awnings, so forth. And I would go up and knock and give my handbill. And they say, oh, yeah, we have that. Come, you can get it. So, and they, had no, they have no way to play it. No way. It's just taking up dust. So uh, I got lots of records that way. That was in the 78 acquisition. And then as I went into the 90s, people said, I have all this vinyl, all these 33s. Let me give it to you. I'll bring it by the station. I'll do this. I'll do that. And, and nobody wanted money. They just wanted to give them to you. Just, just want to hear it on the radio, oh. you know, because nobody, nobody had a record player anymore. You know, everybody's going to CD. Who cared about vinyl? Now, the kids are into vinyl, so it's gone full circle, you know. Suddenly, they all want vinyl, and they want turntables, and they want to listen to old records, and they're paying big top dollar for them. And your wife, has, she has the same reverence for the past that you do. You know, it's amazing. We, we were introduced because she has a collection that she acquired in Paris when she was living there for 30 years. A collection of? Of uh, records, vinyl, 45s and 33s from the 1950s that a French scientist had acquired in the 50s and then wanted to give to her in the 90s. So she took care of it all these years. She paid to bring it back home when she came back home after she was widowed. And then... Uh, we had a mutual friend that said, you know, you both have these record collections. You should meet. So we merged our collections and we merged our life, uh, fell in love. And her name is Kilo Hanna. And she's a Kumuhula in Paris, Rome, Manoa, uh, Beijing, Juneau, Alaska, all over the world. Uh, and uh, so we, we have this winter love. You know, we met <laughs> late in our lives. How long ago did you meet? In 2015. Yeah, right after I retired. And so we, we took our incomes, refinanced the home, and we have a 1931 vintage home in the back of Manoa Valley. And we've uh, remodeled it for aging in place, which is the thing to do. <laughs> and at this point... We're, we're focusing on our nonprofit foundation, the Hawaiian Music Archives Foundation. And the idea is, now that I've turned 70, 
and territorial is 40. I don't have an heir. It's time to focus on preparing all of this for sharing with a curriculum for future generations. So we hope to, my wife and I, hope to have it out there so that it's accessible. And then when the time comes, we can just transfer it to the proper and uh, the, the chosen uh, institution to you know, take care of it for perpetuity. If you had told me back in 1979 that all this was going to happen, I never would have believed it. But uh, it, just, it just seems that slowly but surely, uh, we've gotten opportunities, whether it was the CD series or emceeing shows or you know, being involved in productions, whatever it is, uh, we were able to be part of the culture and we went from we were this weird little thing to now we're having Hapaoli hula festivals. You know, that's quite a stretch over the decades. And it's because you were there and you waited for other people to join you. Pretty much. Yeah, that's, that's all it took. Territorial Airway. Yeah, we're Territorial Airways, your source for the history of Hawaiian music. In 2017, Territorial Airwaves and Harry B. Soria Jr. were honored with a Crash Kealoha Industry Award at the Nahoku Hanohano Lifetime Achievement Awards. He's also received eight Hoku Awards for the vintage recordings that he's helped to re-release. At the time of this conversation in the spring of 2019, Soria continues to broadcast new episodes of Territorial Airwaves to audiences worldwide. Mahalo to Harry B. Soria Jr. of Honolulu, Oahu. And thank you for joining us for this edition of Long Story Short on PBS Hawaii. I'm Leslie Wilcox. Aloha nui. For audio and written transcripts of all episodes of Long Story Short with Leslie Wilcox, visit pbshawaii.org. To download free podcasts of Long Story Short with Leslie Wilcox, go to the Apple iTunes Store or visit pbshawaii.org. What are some of the best-known territorial songs? Of course, R. Alec Anderson is my favorite because he was a local boy. He was not a, a, a mainlander, most of the Hapahali composers are. But he was a local boy who had the ability to, in English, with some Hawaiian words, uh, convey the meaning of uh, you know, the, the earth, the sea, the wind, all of the elements.